Welcome to Market Matters, Thompson Hines' podcast series that explores critical legal and regulatory issues affecting the investment management industry. I'm Josh Hinderleiter, an associate in Thompson Hines' Investment Management Practice Group, and I'm joined by my colleague, Craig Foster, whom I'll let introduce himself. Thanks, Josh. Like Josh said, my name is Craig Foster, and I'm also an associate here at Thompson Hines, working alongside Josh and others in the firm's investment management practice. In today's podcast, we're talking about an important issue that affects not only the investment management industry, but is an increasingly prevalent issue for society as a whole. And that is the issue of serving clients with diminished financial capacity and who face the potential for financial abuse. Now, Craig, you've written on this topic and given guidance to investment advisory firms on how to prepare best practices for serving clients who may face these issues. Can you provide our listeners with some background on this topic? What does diminished financial capacity mean? Well, generally speaking, someone's financial capacity means their ability to manage money and other financial assets in ways that meet their needs and are consistent with their values, objectives, and self-interest. For example, people with financial capacity are able to identify and count money, understand the nature and extent of their debt, conduct cash transactions, pay bills, act prudently, and avoid financial exploitation. Financial capacity is often one of the first abilities to decline during the onset of general cognitive impairment. As a result, diminished financial capacity often goes undetected by affected individuals and their families until more severe impairment occurs. And I want to emphasize that financial capacity is not an all-or-nothing concept. Rather, it is specific to the task at hand, and it can fluctuate over time. For example, mental abilities may even vary during the course of a day. Let's face it. The U.S. population is getting older, and the incidence of Alzheimer's and other dementias is growing, and the number of folks facing these issues is on the rise. So, Craig, given the fact that this issue has potential to affect so many in our society, what should financial service firms be concerned about? Financial service providers face new challenges when they begin to suspect that their client's financial capacity may be impaired. For example, firms need to figure out how to provide their services to clients in accordance with what may be a statutory duty, like a fiduciary or suitability standard, and at the same time, abide by privacy laws and policies that may restrict their ability to contact third parties. Firms may also face issues in communicating with clients with diminished capacity, and they must be equipped to address potential fraud and abuse by trusted family members, friends, or even strangers. And to be sure, regulators expect firms to be prepared. In fact, just this past January, the SEC's Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations announced advisors' practices with respect to senior investors and handling potential financial abuse would be among their 2017 examination priorities. Moreover, just within the past few years, the SEC, the North American Securities Administrators Association, and we'll call them NASA for short, and FINRA undertook a joint effort to identify examples of practices that financial services firms have implemented to address issues of seniors' investors including diminished financial capacity and potential financial abuse. They even published a report available to the public that summarized the results of that study. Right. I remember that report. Maybe we can chat a bit more about that later. However, before we do that, I've noticed that thus far we've been discussing diminished financial capacity in a completely theoretical context. How do financial advisors typically encounter clients exhibiting these signs of diminished financial capacity, And perhaps if we can provide an example to our listeners, that would help. Sure. Here's an example that I often use to show how this can play out. Let's say we have an investor named Bob. He's an 80-year-old widower and has been investing with Jane, his investment advisor, for the last 30 years. They have a great working relationship. For the last 20 years, Bob has maintained a pattern of investing conservatively with the intent to generate investment income. Bob has two children, a son and a daughter, 
who reached 50% beneficiaries on his account. Bob has always spoken kindly of both of his children. Now let's say just a week ago, Bob stopped by Jane's office in a panic. He rushes in and began yelling that he just discovered that Jane had been stealing from him over the last few months because he was only getting $1,000 a month when he was supposed to be getting $3,000. So Jane came out, brought Bob back to her office, and explained to him that in fact he had been receiving $1,000 a month for the last three years. Bob vehemently assured her that she was mistaken. Jane reviewed his account statements with him and finally got him to acknowledge that $1,000 was the amount he had historically received. Bob apologized to Jane for making a scene, and he left calmly. Then, just yesterday, Bob called Jane to say he was unsatisfied with the returns generated on his conservative investment portfolio, and that his son told him about a new social media company that he was starting up with one of his buddies. Bob told Jane that his son told him he could triple his investment within just a few months, and that he wanted to take out $100,000 to invest in the venture. Jane told him that she didn't think that the investment really fit in with his current investment objectives, but Bob insisted that she execute the withdrawal, and Jane's just not sure what to do. So, Josh, let me put it to you. If you were Jane, what questions or concerns would come to mind? Hmm. It looks like Jane faces a number of challenges here. First, if I were Jane, I'd wonder whether Bob's ability to manage his finances have become impaired. Furthermore, if they have, I'd wonder whether the impairment was due to a temporary condition that can be treated or as part of an ongoing cognitive decline. I'd also be concerned that he might be experiencing some sort of financial abuse or undue influence from his son. I'd wonder if I could contact a third party, such as Bob's daughter or a state agency. And even if I could, what could I say? And how should I handle transactions while I'm sorting out these issues? All great points. You can see that a relatively simple fact pattern can yield quite a few questions. Yeah, given these very delicate determinations, what legal or regulatory guidance has been offered to advisors faced with this type of situation? Well, you know how I mentioned that report earlier that was the result of a joint effort taken by the SEC, NASA, and FINRA? That'd be a great place to start if you're wondering whether you should implement additional policies and procedures or refine the ones you already have to adequately address the needs of your clients and protect your firm at the same time. At the outset, each financial firm really needs to understand, based on their own specific business and client population, the level of risk they face. For example, advisors serving retail clients, like our hypothetical Jane, should definitely be thinking about how well-equipped their compliance programs are in responding to this need. The report issued by the financial regulators organized the various practices into the following topics, all of which are worth really thinking about when a firm is evaluating its own compliance program. So I'll tick them off for you here. They are as follows. Analyzing a firm's need to revise supervisory and compliance structures, communicating effectively with investors, training personnel with respect to diminished capacity and financial abuse, internal processes for escalating issues, encouraging all investors to prepare for the future, advise advertising and marketing to senior investors, the use of senior designations, obtaining information at the opening of an account, ensuring the appropriateness of investments, conducting senior-focused supervision, surveillance, and compliance reviews. And as you can see, it's quite a comprehensive list to cover. Josh, you mentioned earlier that you had a chance to look at this report. Can you give our listeners a flavor of some specific practices that firms have adopted in these areas? For example, what kind of specific steps would a firm take if it wanted to better train its personnel on diminished financial capacity and financial abuse? I recall that the first and seemingly most obvious, but perhaps most important, step is simply making personnel within an advisory firm aware of this issue. 
The reports referenced red flags that firm personnel can be trained to identify as warning signs of potential diminished financial capacity, such as the inability of a client to process simple concepts, appearance of memory loss, refusal to follow appropriate investment advice, and as your example references, confusion about account holdings. Once these warning signs are identified, advisory firms are best served to have their personnel document all signs of the client's diminished financial capacity, as well as having a clear procedural hierarchy in place that designates the person or group within the firm where the issue can be escalated to, like a branch manager or a member of the legal or compliance team. But as we've alluded to thus far, all of these situations are very fact-specific to the particular client. A robust advisory firm policy to deal with diminished financial capacity should include constant monitoring of a client's accounts to detect possible irrational behavior as well as regular and consistent communication with each client so that variances in client behavior are easily identified. Firms are also well advised to have an emergency contact person or persons designated for each client so that in the event that the client becomes unable to appropriately communicate with the firm regarding their account, a trusted family member or close friend is already identified. Thanks, Josh. Sometimes the most obvious practices can evade us, so they're really important to mention. What if, as a firm, you were concerned about advertising and marketing fairly to seniors? What might you do? Well, Craig, many firms have adopted specific practices to ensure that marketing materials and seminars do not take advantage of seniors. These practices include banning personnel from using marketing materials that target particular age groups, such as referring to an event as a senior seminar. Firms have also taken the step of providing online brochures to their employees that describe the approval process for all seminars and similar events, as well as maintaining a library of pre-approved marketing materials and online templates for creating such marketing materials. And finally, many firms have taken the step of making unannounced secret shopper compliance visits to seminars put on by personnel. These are also great ideas. And while we don't have time to discuss the full array of practices discussed in the report, I would definitely recommend that our listeners take the time to review it. To repeat what I said earlier, before adopting any particular policy or procedure, a firm needs to take the time at the outset to assess what its particular level of risk exposure is. Thanks, Craig. So what about Jane? How could she address the issues she faces with Bob? Well, that really depends on some additional facts that we don't have. First and foremost, she can always set up a meeting with Bob and discuss her concerns with him privately. A simple solution might be to encourage Bob, if he agrees, to bring his daughter or other trusted family member to meetings with Jane. Alternatively, Bob may have previously provided a power of attorney to his daughter or some other trusted person that Jane has on file, which would allow Jane to reach out to a third party with her concern. Jane's firm may have also asked Bob to provide them with an emergency contact to use if financial abuse or diminished capacity is suspected. The answer's not easy, though, and Jane needs to ensure that she balances addressing Bob's needs with meeting her firm's legal and fiduciary duties. I think that's a great statement, Craig, in that it sums up the difficulty and importance of this issue. According to a January 2016 Population Reference Bureau report, The number of Americans ages 65 and older is projected to more than double from 46 million today to over 98 million by 2060, and the 65 and older age group's share of the total population will rise to nearly 24% from 15% today. Given this documented rise in America's senior population, 
Any investment advisory firm is well advised to review its policies and procedures as they relate to dealing with senior clients generally and specifically of the warning signs of diminished financial capacity and financial abuse. Well said, Josh. For any advisory firms who may want more information on this issue or advice on implementing an effective compliance program to deal with diminished financial capacity and the potential for financial abuse, I would definitely suggest that they reach out to us here at Thompson Hine. For Craig and myself, thank you very much for listening to Market Matters. I hope you found the information shared during today's program valuable. And if you would like to learn more about today's topic or Thompson Hines Investment Management Group, please visit thompsonhine.com or contact a member of our team directly. With approximately 400 lawyers and seven offices, Thompson Hine is a full-service business law firm recognized for innovation and client service. Our smart path approach provides clients with service that is predictable, efficient, and aligned with their goals. 